This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Alexander II. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. And it's hot. It's the hottest day of the year, and you've been sailing in storms for the last couple of weeks, so you must be glad to be in the tightly sealed Rex Factor Studios on the hottest day of the year. If you hear me nodding off, it's not the topic, it's just this this greenhouse that the country's become. Well, you'd be glad to know that you're not going to be dropping off today, because Alexander II, we've got some good stuff. Have we got a bit of this? We may well have a bit of this. good. Uh, Now, a quick bit of backgroundy Mm. stuff to remember where we've come from. David I, very successful reign where he took advantage of England's anarchy, the civil war between Stephen and Matilda. He occupied Northumbria, Cumberland, Mm. um, all the way down even Lancashire and Yorkshire. But his only son died, which meant that he had to pass the throne to his 12-year-old grandson, Malcolm IV. Yeah. When Malcolm IV came to the throne, the anarchy ended. Henry II became king. Whoops. Henry II, massively, massively powerful, a big empire with the left of France. Mm. He immediately takes back the northern counties of England. (laughs) Obviously. Um, Malcolm also has to deal with rebellions from dynastic rivals, the McWilliams, who are Mm. descendants of Duncan II. Mm. Um, And also the McHeths, who are from Ross, which was an earldom, and they'd had it taken away from them. So they're rebelling a bit in the north of Scotland. And then he dies young, and his brother William the Lion becomes king. Ah, he was our last... He was our last one. He he? was absolutely obsessed with regaining the earldom of Northumberland. Oh, that's right. So he spends his entire reign trying to get it back, which leads to disaster when he got captured at Annick Mm. and had to sign the Treaty of Falaise in 1175, which basically meant that he had to say, Henry II and England are absolutely my boss and Scotland's boss, and they can have whatever they like, including all our castles. So Edward I was right. Edward I was right all along. He got some of it back under Richard, but then at the end of his reign, when he was ill and old and just trying to Mm. uh, get the succession for his son sorted out, he has to sign a treaty with John, in which John is effectively positioning himself as master of Scotland. Yeah, so what was that? It was um, re-signing the Falaise Treaty. For yeah, him, not, not quite as dramatic as that. Right. And then he dies in 1214, and we have Alexander II. Here we are, in 1214. So, son of William the Lion and uh, Ermengarde de Beaumont. Mm, nice name. Man. Uh, was born on the 24th of August, 1198. So he's just 16 when he becomes king in December 1214. Sixteen in these days is that still that's still a minority? It's still very young, but I mean, I suppose Henry the Second was a bit of a boss. 
it all round, yeah. even at 16. From a young but... age, exactly. Mm, okay. And there is no minority, so he does a full, uh, assume oh, full right. right straight from the off. Okay. Now, we don't have any contemporary portraits of Alexander no. II, but we do, <laughs> of course, have the Heritage Playing Card Limited's artist depiction. Here we go. Okay, the big reveal. Oh, hang on. What am I expecting? What are you expecting? Well, a boy. Mm. Um, blonde, fair of hair and face. Mm-hmm. Not very warlike, more of a choir boy. Mm. Think squire with a crown on top. Squire boy. Squire boy, exactly. <laughs> Avec crown and... Well, I have to say, mm-hmm. age up that image. Yeah. Stick a beard on him, a stone under his foot. Presumably the stone of Schoon, I'm guessing that is the coronation stone on which Scottish kings are crowned. I mean, he cuts quite a dashing figure, doesn't he? Mm. His footwear looks uncomfortable, but other than that, I'd say that's... That solid kinging there. He looks thoughtful. What's his, what's his pose? What's he doing? Well, he's he's like doing Rodan's thinker. <laughs> Is it a thinker? Yeah. Yeah. Um, with a hand under his chin. But he has got a sneaky sword there. Don't get carried away. He's mm. prepared to defend himself. But yeah, no, he looks great. Well, we do have a bit of a description. And uh, like his father, William the Lion, he's described as having red hair. Well, he missed a trick there. Yeah, missed he? a trick there. So he's a redhead rather than uh, oh. rather than a blondie. Uh, in terms of his personality, like his father, he's got a certain uh, sort of aggressive pride and ambition, mm. very strong sense of his place in the world, but he's perhaps a bit more savvy and pragmatic Good. than his father. And he's also got a certain sort of ruthless brutality and a dislike of any kind of grey area when it comes to <laughs> loyalties and territories. <laughs> we'll see what you think, but he reminds me a little bit of a certain medieval English monarch. Oh. But you might have a certain I have uh, to say, affinity with. I really don't like that character trait in people that I know, <laughs> but I like, I lo- or I find it funny, I suppose, but in medieval kings, it is brilliant. So, he was groomed for kingship from mm. uh, a very young age, because despite the efforts of uh, this dynasty, a lack of sons meant that they still hadn't been able to make primogeniture yeah. happen. Yeah. And this is the first ever Scottish father-to-son succession. Right. Oh, is this the first one in a year and a half of Scottish Rex Factor? <laughs> yes. um, so, because of this, that's why William's so nervous about at the end of his reign, because it's actually mm. quite a big thing. It's not enshrined yet. It's no, by no means guaranteed that people will accept it. Um, so, Alexander is recognised by the nobles a couple of times. In 1212, William resigned all of his English estates to Alexander. William the Lion. The Lion gave them all to him, right, yeah. yep. Um, and Alexander played um, an increasing role in government, mm. um, Good. partly also because William was ill. Yeah. 1212, there was a McWilliam rebellion, and Alexander was knighted by King John, right. and then given a mercenary army, which he took up to uh, to Scotland to try and deal with it. It's looking very good, but does that imply that he was part of the um, English court? Was he one of those ones? No, so William resisted that, because he was worried that John would try and take him and keep him. Yeah. But on this occasion, he was able to get knighted and then sent north right. to deal with the rebellion. At which point, he's only 14 years old when wow. this is going on. Yeah. Gosh. Rebellion actually petered out before he got there. But nevertheless, at 16, as we said, he has done stuff. He has, in effect, been yeah. in charge of an army. He's been getting involved in government. That's he's ready brilliant. to be king. He's knighted at 14. I didn't have GCSE at 14. And he's <laughs> knighted. Yeah. Wow. And in charge of an army. Yeah. However, it's not all and completely secure. He's inaugurated as king at Schoon just one day after William the Lion dies. Yeah. So several days before he's buried. Got to lock that down. 
And the reason for that is that Scotland is still a little bit dodgy. Mm. In terms of its territory, I've been saying this since the, you know, that first episode we did a long time ago, but it's still not the Scotland as we know it today. Yeah. So in terms of the mainland, the nor- well, the northern and western isles are ruled by Norway. Right. So like Orkney, Shetland, Skye, all that sort mm. of stuff. Um, in the mainland, Murray, Caithness in the north, and then Galloway in the southwest, they're still largely separate sort of areas. So even though they kind of owe allegiance to the Scottish king, they don't really play ball and they often rebel. Mm. Right, okay. And we've got tensions between the Anglo-Norman elites that we've seen dominating the Scottish court as opposed to the Gaelic yeah. native lords. Yeah. So that's something that's playing up. And as we said, primogeniture is yet to be established and there are dynastic rivals in the form of the McWilliams. How are they dynastic rivals? What's their claim? They were descended from Duncan II. Oh, yes, you said, yeah. And they just keep popping up every now and again and rebelling. <laughs> so they like slap the rat. They just <laughs> keep yeah. down, down, down you go. Um, and sure enough, in 1215, January, so just a month after oh. William dies, Donald Ban McWilliam mm. allies with Kenneth McHeth, who is mm. of this disinherited Ross Earldom family, and an Irish prince. Oh, do we know who? Uh, I'm not sure if we know who, but, you know, he's mm. powerful and he's okay. got some Irish troops. And uh, in Murray and Ross, we've got rebellion just a month into the 16-year-old's reign. How's he going to do? Well, fortunately, which is nice for a 16-year-old, he doesn't even have to get out of bed to deal with this. Because <laughs> instead of him having to raise an army, a local lord, the awesomely named Farquhar McTaggart, brilliant, <laughs> he defeats and beheads the rebels and send their heads to Alexander. Summary justice like that. He just says, oh, hang on, I've got an idea. <laughs> exactly. Don't you know these? Yeah. He just, wow, okay. Crikey. Bold. Indeed. So that's sorted, and mm. instead Alexander can focus on England, because, like his father, he wants Northumberland back. Who have we got in charge down there, John? We've got King John. Good. So as right. I said, from 1209, he's kind of been acting as Scottish overlord. Mm. It looks like he wants to take things a bit further. But John's got problems in England. Mm. Hugely unpopular, largely due to uh, very heavy taxes, losing all of the land in France and sleeping with all the wives and daughters of his barons. And tugging Irish beards. So in 1215, he was forced to agree a peace deal by the barons with a document placing limits on his powers. Famously, the Magna Carta. We should have a little little jingle for the Magna, <laughs> Magna Carta. Carta. Perhaps not me saying it in such a dopey way. <laughs> if anyone wants to remix Ali saying <laughs> Magna Carta. Um, and now, interestingly, Clause 59 of the Magna Carta specifically references his obligations to Alexander, King of Scots, in which it's enshrined that John has certain obligations to him in terms of arranging marriage for his sisters. Why would that be in there? I thought it was all about... Well, he's got some allies down south who are pushing his claims. So that's quite nice. Yeah. But of course, John ignores it immediately, yeah. and there's a civil war in England. Lovely. And... Alexander, like his father, thinks, ooh, civil war in England, I think that's time for an invasion. <laughs> yeah, green light. So Alexander invades the north, and uh, supported by his two illegitimate brothers-in-law, who are local lords, um, while he's besieging Norham in northern England, he received homage from the barons of Northumberland. Right. Because okay, they're so also opposed to John, so they decide they're going to throw their lot in with the King of Scots. Yeah, they've only got two options there, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. They, they, was, there, was there a chance that they could... S- I mean, are they powerful enough on their own to be their own place, like the, like Murray or anything like that? Nexit. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they but they're happy to have a Scottish overlord. They that's a sort of well, return to the norm. Isn't these it? ones, whether they see that as long term option, but oh. short term certainly they okay. think we need somebody to help out because John's not very happy about all of this rebelling, mm. and he's certainly not happy about the King of Scots invading. He takes an army north, siege, uh, storms up there, furious when he found that Alexander had burned Newcastle before retreating. <laughs> yeah. And then apparently he vowed to hunt the red fox cub from his lairs. Oh, he's got away with words. Mm. So he seizes rebel castles in uh, northern England and devastates towns both there and in southern Scotland. Right, and so where's Alexander at this point? Well, he's retreated further up into Scotland. Apparently John personally started a fire at Berwick, which was considered a bit bad form. Yeah. But while John is up north, the barons in southern England invite Prince Louis of France to invade and become king instead. Mm. So John has to go back down south to deal with all of this. And while he's going back, Alexander, with his army raised, chases after him. Right, okay. Ness. Yeah, initially he pursues him to uh, Richmond, but then John goes off to deal with something, and then Alexander takes a different course, and he marches his army all the way down to Dover. What? Because he decides he's going to do homage to Louis of France and say, hey, here I am, helping out old chum, how about you let me have those lands in the north? Yeah, good idea, but that's... He's got all the way down with his army to Dover, which, if you're not aware of uh, English geography, is quite south. It's as far as you can go. (laughs) So, would he... At this point, sorry, Mm. technical question, Mm. would he have problems with supply lines here, or is the country enough in um, disorder that he would have had support walking down? I think it's probably in enough disorder, Mm. I guess... When we're comparing to things like sort of the Crusades and France, remembering yeah. that Britain's not quite as big as other places. And also, he's not planning to stay there for a long time. So he goes down, has a chat with Louis, and then he heads back up again. Yeah. So he doesn't stay for okay. a very long time. Right. So it's not a kind of an invasion. It's just a big armed procession. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so at this point, it's looking very good. He's mates with the uh, prospective new king. He's taken over the north of England again. Yeah. And then in 1216... John dies. Now, you might think the fact that John died was a good piece of news, really. Yeah. From Alexander's perspective, it's a bit unlucky, because John is really the main cause for the war in the first place, Mm. and his son, Henry III, is just a child, and no Mm. one's really got any beef with him. Mm. So this kind of brings the English barons back to the royal cause, particularly when it's led by the awesome William the Marshal. Yes. Um, a special episode available on speech I'm so hot my legs are sweating. Um Um yeah, bye now. <laughs> so William the Marshal, seventy years old, galvanizes the uh the English troops, wins two great battles at Lincoln and then um, well there's a sea battle at Sandwich, and in twelve seventeen Louis makes peace with Henry the Third and goes back to France. Mm. So Alexander is now on his own. The papacy is also supporting Henry, so Alexander, his nobles and the clergy get excommunicated. Oh, no. Mm. Um, sorry, that sounds sarcastic, but that's really <laughs> that's really big news in these days. And he yeah. seemingly hasn't done anything to warrant it. Like He was just getting involved, and all of a sudden someone catches the ball, and everyone stops where they are. Yeah. You know, or the person playing Mr. Wolf, whatever it is, turns around and everyone stops, and he gets in trouble. Well, I mean, they did this to all of the... So, the um the rebel the English rebels had been excommunicated oh, and it was yeah. something they okay. were doing as a tactic yeah. really to bring mm. people on side. Mm. So when everyone else makes peace, 
they get let off, but then, like you said, the music stopped and Alexander's like, where's everyone else gone? Yeah. Um, so why didn't he... Could he have thrown his lot in with Henry III then and made... Well, ultimately, that's what he has to do. Okay. Um, he holds on for a little bit. He goes on for a bit longer, but you know, being excommunicated is a pretty yeah. pretty bad thing. So he has to come down to Northampton and submit to uh, the child king, surrenders Carlisle. Um, the child king submits to the younger child king. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and he does homage for the English lands of Tyndale and Huntingdon that they already owned. Mm. No mention of the northern counties. Damn. However, after this, relations really improve between England and Scotland. Neither country really wants a war. No. And uh, so they work to make things a bit better. In 1221, Alexander marries Henry III's sister, Joan. Okay, so yeah, things are getting quite, quite, uh, yeah, quite happy. Quite chummy. <laughs> and uh, Alexander's three sisters then marry um, local, sorry, local, marry um, notable English lords. Um, now, in 1237, however, there are some brewing tensions when Henry marries Eleanor of Provence mm-hmm. instead of one of Alexander's sisters, which had originally been mooted. It's a better match, that, isn't well, it? Well, it is. Henry also demand that Alex pay him homage as liege lord, mm. but he refuses. Oh, no, it's going he's wrong. Like, hey, I'm independent. I don't owe you any homage. But it doesn't come to war. They agree a peace at York. Alexander will pay homage uh, for some English lands, but he also yields his claim to Northumberland and the northern counties. So Alexander is now accepting fine the northern bits of England are yours, not mine. What persuaded him to do that? Well, it's to make a lasting peace deal so they don't have to worry about this anymore. And it does effectively, for the first time, create a, an acknowledged border. Right. Okay. And that's actually more recognisable of Scotland today above Northumberland. Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, the marriage to Joan wasn't particularly fruitful. They don't seem to have got on. She was only about 10 years old at the well, time that they initially got married. And uh, the mother-in-law, Ermengarde, is still quite a formidable presence at court. Poor girl. So she ends up spending quite a lot of time in England. Yeah. And she's actually there at York when they have these negotiations in 1237. But mm. she then goes south with Henry rather than going back up. Um, um, any of that? With her brother? Oh, it's her brother. Whoops. Yeah, yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I that would be worthy of yeah, the bell sounding. Yeah, that would be mega but, uh, okay. No. no, no. Ten years old and going off with her brother. Okay, forget that. No, she dies. Instead, Alexander marries a woman called Mary de Cousy. Appropriate name. Now, she was uh, a quite an incendiary choice of bride because she was the daughter of a powerful man called Engorand. Uh, sorry? Engorand. Where's he from? He's from uh, Picardy. Oh, okay. And he's a very right. powerful baron there and a bit of a uh, opponent of one Henry III of England. So he knew what he was doing here. So he has picked a bride that would absolutely not go down well with Henry. He's worried that Alexander's trying to make an alliance with the French against him. There's then a dispute over where exactly the border is between England and mm. Scotland, which had this rather farcical situation of um, sort of six Scottish lords walking off in one way and the English lords walking another way and saying, no, it's this way. No, it's this way. What? When they're up at York? Uh, no, further up, when they're trying to agree literally where the border is. Really? They can't quite agree. Wow. So it's all getting quite um, <laughs> tense again. Henry makes threats to Alexander. Alexander raises an army in response, and they're getting ready again, mm. potentially for battle. But in 1244, there's another peace treaty at York. Uh, not at York. There's another peace treaty at Newcastle. 
They're good at this. They yeah. are good at this. In this one, there isn't really much done. They effectively reconfirm York, but Alexander pledges to refrain from any hostile acts against Henry unless attacked. But that's the, what the situation was anyway, wasn't it? It, was just... it is. I mean, effectively, he's saying, I promise I'm not planning to make war on you with France. I've just basically. married a Frenchie. Despite yeah. having just married uh, a Frenchie. But what Alexander is able to do as a result of this largely peaceful relationship with England mm. is focus on Scotland. Yeah, Which true. is what William wasn't able to do because he was always yeah. messing around with Northumberland. And there's quite a lot to sort out. In Caithness, in 1222, Alex's local man, a bishop called Adam, mm. was killed in a hall burning. Yay! Another one! Lovely. And the, uh, the Norse Earl, a chap called John, uh, refused to intervene, despite apparently being pretty much his next-door neighbour. What are you going to do with the hall on fire, though? Just oh, stand there and go, oh... Well, maybe before it gets set on fire, you could say to everyone, guys, guys, don't set that hall on fire. That is effective. And throw stones at him and you know all the other stuff yeah. that they were doing. Um, Alexander, at this point, was about to go um, to Canterbury for a pilgrimage, but hearing about the news, he raises an army, storms up north, hunts down and mutilates the killers, and then seven years later, John himself is killed in a hall burning by his former followers. And Alexander is now able to install a loyal earl, and he's got control over Caithness. Okay, so another sort of semi-independent area under control. Good. Twelve twenty-eight. The McWilliams yet again rebel. Splat the rat. In Murray, yet again, led by a chap called Gilscop. <laughs> but uh, a year later, twelve twenty-nine, Gilscop and his followers are killed by the Anglo-Norman Scottish Earl Walter Comyn. Right. Was he put in there by Margaret? By Alexander. Oh, well, one. yeah, he's all come along. Mm. And then in 1230, the last of the McWilliams is uh, put to a rather brutal and public death, oh. ending the line. We may come to that <laughs> in uh, Scandal. Oh, right. Okay. So, and that is the last of the McWilliams. They, the line has now been extinguished. It's done. So he's quite... Um, who, is it? Was it, who was the mass murderer? Duncan? Uh, Malcolm the Second was a bit of a mass murderer. So has he got a bit of that in him? Well, I mean, it's a bit different because he is dealing with rebels rather than just <laughs> yeah. members of his family. Going so up there, <laughs> say, you look fishy. Yeah, off the end. Now, um, an ally of Alexander's is uh, the Lord of Galloway, Alan. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to all of you, everyone called Alan out there. I just was. He's just been talking about someone called Roiksop and Gilplop, whatever, and now Alan's joined the mix. Um, Alan of Galloway might have sounded a bit better than just me saying. Alan, yeah. Alan! Um, so, as I said, Galloway's technically meant to be subservient to Scotland, but in reality it's pretty yeah. independent, but working with um, Scotland. So Alan's very powerful <laughs> and independent. <laughs> so oh. sorry to all <laughs> If you've ever seen Alan Partridge, this is why I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. He's got his own army, which is very large, a navy, which is very large, much larger than the Scottish. Um, oh, right. Certainly the Navy. I don't know about the Army. But he is an ally. He's actually the Constable of Scotland. So he's one of Alexander's you know, most senior men at court. Mm. But he is very powerful. So when he dies in 1234 without any legitimate sons, yeah. Alexander sees an opportunity Definitely. to take control. Now, he does have an illegitimate son called Thomas. Yeah. And in the Gaelic succession, that's kind of fine for him to succeed. But Alexander says, no, he's got three daughters with Anglo-Norman husbands who are all going to be nice to me. I'm going to split Galloway up between them. And they even say, look, why don't you be the Lord of Galloway instead? And then we can still be ruled by one Lord. 
That's but, a really good idea. Well, but he doesn't want it to be a large, powerful lordship. He wants it to be cut up and just part of Scotland. Mm. He doesn't want there to be these really powerful men that are largely independent. He wants it to be all just Scotland. Mm. No grey, no uncertainties. Oh, yeah, but to have it all yourself, strip it, take the ships. Well, it still would be all himself. It's just Scotland. Okay, yeah, right. So the girls have So got he's it. still got the ships and the armies. Oh, fine. Okay, yeah. lovely. Uh, but there's a rebellion in 1235, um, so Thomas and um, other sort of lords and the Irish get involved again, mm. and they rebel against him. But the rebels are defeated by uh, Farquhar MacTaggart, <laughs> who's now the Earl of Ross. The, the beheady chap. The beheady chap. Right. And the region is then pacified by Walter Comyn, so we've got the Gaelic and the sort of Norman Earl both getting involved, did sorting he, stuff out. So this Farquhar chap, he just went in and did the same job again? Yeah. He's brilliant. He's very good. Yeah. Got to use him. Yeah. He's chief rat splatter. Mm. So, okay, so Thomas is gone. That's the end of that. And Galloway is now fully Scottish now. It's not this lordship. It's just part oh, of Scotland. Another now. one then. Mm. Brilliant. So the last grey area that you've got to deal with, the Western Isles. Oh, yeah. This was one where the uh, Vikings took control of it. And they were allowed any island that you could sh- sail a ship between mm. it and the mainland. With like the rudder or the keel. Or yeah, 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 what a great rule. Yeah, so that was Edgar of Scotland right. and Magnus Barelegs. Yes. And he was a crafty one. Yeah. So from that point, they effectively say this is officially Norse. Mm. So we've got that going on, but it's also quite a volatile region anyway. We've got all these mighty sea lords. Galloway was one of the players in all of this, as we'll see. Um the Kingdom of Man is quite important, mm. in the Isle of Man. The Irish and Ulster, they kind of get involved. There's kind oh. of this Kingdom of the Isles. So there's lots of power play going on. And the King of Norway right. also gets involved. Yeah. And there's a regional power struggle on Man between a chap called Rognald, who's backed by uh, Alan mm. of Calloway, mm. and his brother Olaf, who's backed by Harkon IV of Norway. Great name. Mm. Alan invades... And installs uh, Rognald, but the Manx reject him in favour of Olaf. Manx in this instance, M-A-N-X, not yes. people from Manchester. No, so right. the people of Man. Right. Now, Olaf is going to come back and be king, but he's gone off to Norway and returns with King Harkon and oh. a fleet. Because they're not very happy about all of this meddling, so they're going to sort it out. So they attack Butte and Kintyre, which is proper Scottish territory at this point. They withdrew after some skirmishes, but Olaf is successfully established ruling man, and then the Norse go home. Yeah, success then. Success for them. Now, Alexander had kind of given Alan of Galloway a bit of a free reign to intervene and cause problems, because he thinks, well, it's my man, he's going to sort stuff out, and then ultimately it will just bring things into my orbit. Yeah. But once he gets an invasion from Norway, and he's having to raise an army to potentially deal with pretty massive issue he thinks right this isn't very good anymore so he decides the only way to sort all of this out is if the western isles are just part of scotland yeah yeah so initially he uh writes a very friendly letter (laughs) oh i think he he wrote a strongly worded letter (laughs) just grumpy of tunbridge wells and uh, he offers to purchase the western isles from Ah. harkin the fourth and just take them as scottish no battle they'll just pay you and then they'll be ours he is really you're right he's much more pragmatic Mm. But Harkin is a Viking and absolutely rejects such mm, a yeah. classic offer. In 1249, Harkin commissions Ewan of Argyll. Mm. So this is very, very west of Scotland, looking out uh, to the Western Isles. He commissions Ewan to reinforce Harkin's authority in the area because he's worried that Alexander's going to try and get everybody to be Scottish instead. Yeah. Alexander demands that Ewan submits to him, and when Ewan does not do so, 
Alexander raises a massive army and, because he's got Galloway, a massive navy. Yeah. Expels Ewan from Argyle, so that's now fully on board as well. And then takes this fleet and sails to the little island of Carrera, just off Oban. Right. So he's doing it. He is about to launch... Oh, so he's, he's just mopping them up island by island at the moment. Well, that's what he's about to start to do. He's about okay. to now take control of the Western Isles of Scotland. Unfortunately, Alexander suffers a fever on Carrera and dies. Oh, no! On the verge of completing oh, that was be this epic campaign. 50 years old. Like Edward I, he's on campaign at the very extremities yeah. of his empire. And uh, and he dies. The sagas claim that he was visited in a dream by uh, the saints Olaf, Magnus, and Columba, who told him to turn round, but he refused. I told him to get, just die. Yeah, <laughs> don't die now. In reality, he health had been a bit dodgy for about a year. In 1248, he had to get uh, papal dispensation not to eat any fish at Lent, <laughs> and had to be eating cheese and eggs instead. Oh, that was good of them to yeah. allow him to do that. Cheese omelette, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> um. That's I don't know why that hit me quite so hard. I was really disappointed there. I thought yeah. we were about to have some sort of. He was in my mind. He his whole reign was building to something like this. Mm. It was all coming right. <clears throat> he was about to mop them all up, and he hadn't even got to Isle of Man then at this point. No, he hasn't got to Man. Mm. Damn, that is that is frustrating. It's frustrating. He must have been really gutted. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I still feel like that's a really good reign. Well, let's see how good it is when we review it. Battleliness! There's clearly quite a lot going on in terms of battleliness. Mm. Mm. First of all, we've got his uh, playing around in England in the First Baron's War. Yeah, I was surprised about that at such a mm. young age. Yeah, so initially he besieges Norham, and his brother-in-law, as we said, helped him secure the support of the Northern Lords, who also poached John. And he also receives the homage of rebel lords in Yorkshire, because when John storms up north... And they're being pursued by him. The Yorkshire rebels go up to Alexander. Um, so that's his initial invasion. But then it's just this incredible thing. The fact that he initially pursues John to Richmond, but then he marches down to Dover. Yeah, on a weirdly aggressive ramble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a camera. No, 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 we're not here. We're not going to kill you. Just, yeah, just, all right. This has escalated fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was so surprised when you said that. Mm. That's um, sort of Harold-worthy, yeah. the length of that march. I mean, needless to say, no Scottish monarch before or indeed since gets so far into England. Yeah. I initially, when you said Richmond, mm. thought you meant Richmond, London, rather than ah, Richmond up north. Thought, that would be ridiculous. That would be, exactly. And then he goes 80 <laughs> miles further south. Yeah. Wow. He made Alan of Galloway the Lord of North Westmoreland. Yeah. Installed his own candidate as bishop at Carlisle, which was now acting as his own sort of base of operations. Yeah, and when you think of um, previous kings that we've discussed, how much of their reign is just spent with incredibly boring admin of trying to get their own bishop <laughs> yeah. installed. And he yeah. just, right, that's done. Let's yeah. get on. Yeah. It's good. In terms of Scotland, as you were saying, he's taking off a lot of formerly yeah. sort of rebel and not entirely... Um, Scottish areas. 1221 to 22, Alexander goes to Inverness to quell a revolt of a Highland chieftain called Donald MacNeil. Mm. He then had a major campaign in Argyll, securing Kintyre, and then he fortifies Tarbert as a royal stronghold for the castle. Yeah. Caithness, in 1222, we had the murder of the bishop. Um, remind me? In the hall burning. The hall burning, yeah. And it seems likely that... Um, and what, and he was trying, what he was trying to do, with the reason he got 
burnt in his hall was that he was trying to bring Caithness more into line with European religious practices. He was Alexander's agent in the in Caithness, so right. this is an affront to Alexander. Okay. His man's yeah. been killed. Now, Earl John probably thought that the murder would improve his position in the region because Alexander's agent was dead and that Alexander was probably too busy and too far mm. away to worry about it. So yeah. there would be no repercussions. Okay. Carry on. Get those fires out. Quite a serious miscalculation <laughs> yeah. because Alexander turns round, gets that army, hunts down the perpetrators and confiscated half the earldom from him mm. and then has co- total control after John dies. Yeah, perfect. Well played by Alex. So it's very direct, immediate action. Mm. Doesn't No nonsense, no messing around. He just storms straight in there and takes control. Yeah, no black and white, as you say. 1228 rebellion, Gilskop McWilliam led uh, an uprising in Murray. Um, he burnt down a castle and sacked Inverness. Mm. Alan of Galloway married a daughter of Hugh de Lacey, who is the Earl of Ulster. benefit of that is it cuts off Irish support, because now the Earl of Ulster is getting involved on Alexander's behalf yeah. to get rid of those rebels that keep coming over. Clever and getting involved. Then Gilskop and his sons are killed, and as I said, the last McWilliam very publicly executed in 1230. Mm. So he's finally, after so many reigns of McWilliam rebellions popping up all over the place, Splattered. it's all dealt with, and Murray is finally rid of its rebels and leaders. Well, that's pretty good then. It's mm. pretty big. And also, we said Galloway in 1235, um, he broke up the powerful lordships. The Galwegians um, rebelled, as we said, led by Thomas and a local chieftain called Gil Ruff. Mm. Um, and this involves Manx troops, Irish forces, uh, again, further south. But uh, Alexander was actually ambushed in camp, so he was in a little bit of trouble. He did get attacked and taken by surprise. But that's when Farquhar McTaggart came along. <laughs> Splatty ratty. Splatty ratty. And then Argyll in 1249, although he doesn't get over to the Western Isles, Alexander did expel the rebel Ewan mm. from Argyll. Yeah. So he is now, for the first time, master of mainland Scotland. It's all now Scotland. It's brilliant. It's mm. really good. I mean, and we're going to get onto it, but it's not just mainland Scotland. Like, he has a crack. Yeah, he does have a crack. And he's also got new sort of lordships and new pro-Scottish earldoms. So Farquhar MacTaggart in Ross mm. um, and Murray is now the lord. So he's got a local man and a loyal man. Yeah. Which yeah. is sort of what yeah. you really need. Um, as I said, Galloway broken up and he gets all of that Armada from Galloway as well, so Brilliant. he's much more powerful as a result of that. He's crushed the rebellions. It's good. It's really good. We do have to accept there are a few negatives. Mm. Ultimately, the First Baron's War is unsuccessful in terms of his war aims. But Oh, because the the music stops. He does ultimately have to submit to Henry III. He doesn't get the Northern Counties. Yeah. So it was all quite a lot of effort for no actual gain in the end. Yes, and he did suffer an invasion from John, who went around burning all the Scottish towns in the south. But he made his, came back with a lovely armed ramble. He did, and there's also a suggestion that actually Alexander made a tactical retreat to gather an army for yeah. battle. Doing the old Russian Barbarossa trick, retreat back across the highlands. Yeah, and the reason that John got up so quickly was because he had a small and mobile force. So there's also a suggestion that as well as having to go back to deal with Louis, he's also aware that he does not have forces right. to take on the Scots in battle. Mm. So actually, it's not that Alexander's been pushed it back into his lair to yeah. hide. He's just retreated tactically and is now ready to fight. I hadn't interpreted it as a t- as a retreat. It definitely seemed like a a thought through thing. Mm. Um uh but also you you say the negative about giving up on the Northumberland thing because it was it, it was never achieved. Mm. It's quite a good thing to have done to mm. finally get that rid of that chip. 
on yeah. the shoulder. Just say, right, that's causing such a drain on all <laughs> of our time and resources. <laughs> yeah. Let's just consolidate. Mm. I think that's good. The other major downside, obviously, is that he doesn't complete the conquest of the Western Isles. Yes. And uh, he has that invasion that he suffers in 1230. Not a major invasion by the Norse, but nevertheless, mm. there is a bit of Norse going around. Though it's quite a, a typically uh, idiosyncratic uh, chronicle. <laughs> this is the saga. Oh, yeah. The saga account. They went on land in Kintyre and plundered there. There the Scots came against them, and a battle was fought there, and many fell upon both sides. But when the Norwegians came to their ships, the Scots had killed the Norwegians' cooks. Sorry? The cooks? Yes. Right? Why is he telling us this? I don't... It's the little details they feel we need to know. Ships presumably were fine, but they thought, ha-ha, kill their cooks. That'll show them. Who's going to pickle right. their herrings now? Yeah, I want, I want some pickled herring. God, they killed the cooks, the murderous barbarians. So, there we are for battliness. I guess the big sticking point is the fact that he doesn't have that last, final, glorious conquest of the Western Isles, that he dies on the verge of achieving it. How did I get, treat Edward for that? <laughs> Generously, I think. Yeah, I think I have to be generous here. But he achieves so much. Yeah. All of mainland Scotland, getting his army down to Dover, mm. all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. A lot of good stuff there. And he was, I know we, I know he didn't do it, but he was on the cusp with his big fleet. He'd killed the cooks. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and once the cooks are gone, I mean, that's, you know. What, how can they eat? Do you know what I like? Is that he's pragmatic mm. and competent. Yeah, he doesn't take on too much. No. You know, and he just gets it done. Mm. Um, it's hard to work out what's fair, but I really want to give, give him a big score here. I suppose he doesn't, even though we're not going to, necessarily take away big time for not conquering the western isles because we're kind of like if he died before even starting we wouldn't yeah. be saying oh but he but, didn't yeah, conquer the western true. isles it's only because he was yeah. going to he just didn't you know we can't yeah we've got to i suppose what he lacks which for me will probably stop him getting the absolutely highest mm. sort of level of score is that there isn't really a battle we can say ah oh, when he had this great victory at the battle of no Dinda. no but it is a lot of impressive taking over rebellious regions, dealing with rebellions. Yeah, and it's impressive. the impact of that. Although there might be small skirmishes, mm. the impact is the equivalent of one of those big battles that would have unified Scotland. Yeah. Imagine in the past, so they needed to have those big moments to go to have a massive conquest, and a, mm. and and that's how they achieved it. Instead, yeah. he became you know became so dominant of Scotland by these. More sensible, hmm. perhaps easier means. Bite off what you could chew, splat that rat. Yes. Win the circus. Yes. And he won the circus. Mm. And how many points did he get for winning the circus? Um. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I don't think I can go. I don't think I can go the final top two points, mm. but seven. I'm going to be slightly more generous and give mm. him a seven and a half. Okay. I think it's a good, good effort from Alexander the Second there. If he had got the Western Isles, then we'd be looking at you know, oh, yeah. sort of eight nines. Yeah, but instead, that's fourteen and a half for Battliness. Tasty scandal. Now, usually, what I do with this is that if there's any kind of juicy bedroom antics, I yeah. save that to the end. But with Alexander the Second, that's not really what he's all about. Oh, so I'll just throw in the fact that um, he does have that rather unsuccessful relationship with his first wife. She does seem to spend a lot of time in England. Fishy and Alexander does have an illegitimate daughter called Marjorie. Hmm. So he has cheated on the King of England's sister. 
Oh yeah, that's suppose when you put it like that. Yeah. Um, yes. The main thing for Alexander is actually the brutality. Oh, okay. The Here way that go. he deals with his rebels. Yes. Which, you know, sometimes you think, well, this is kind of battling, this is kind of bad subjectivity, but when it reaches a certain level, <laughs> it's scandal. Here we go, I'd forgotten about this, yeah. Now, in Case Ness, when the bishop got murdered, yeah. Alexander hunted down the killers and, you know, had them killed yeah. and mutilated and put on display. But that he didn't stop just at the killers. This is the Icelandic annals. The king of the Scots caused 80 men who had been present at the burning to have their hands and feet cut off, and many of them died. Yeah. So essentially that's 80 men mutilated because they were there at the time and didn't do anything about it. That's 360 hands and feet lying around. What do you do Well, although one of the historians suggests that it may just have been a hand and a foot for each person. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's that? 160? <laughs> yes. 160 little bits of hands and feet. Did they bury them? I don't know. What do you do with a spare foot? Oh, write in, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is horrible, though. It's pretty horrible. And what their crime was? Spectating. Yes. Mm. In Galloway, um, Thomas, the rebel leader, surrendered, mm. and uh, Alex gets praised by Walter Bauer, author of the Scottish Chronicon, for showing mercy to people in uh, Galloway who then submit... Yeah, he's fine with that. Mm. Let's them sort out. However, he does go on to say that not everybody uh, (laughs) is so fortunate. The rest of the Irish who wanted to flee the country were killed in one attack by the citizens of Glasgow. But the king ordered two of the more important by birth to be torn apart by horses at Edinburgh. Oh, (laughs) actually, you've put that image in my head. Yes. As a kid, I used to, you know, hear all these things and just think, that's nasty. But actually thinking about that, mm. oh, well, goodness me. This is pretty bad. I maybe should have given you the warning before that one. But uh, if you are of a sensitive disposition, the next one, the final one, is particularly nasty. Gross warning. This is the Lanacost Chronicle. And this is after the final McWilliam Rebellion was put down. You remember I said that there was this public yeah. brutal execution. Well, this is what it is. And after the enemy had been successfully overcome, a somewhat too cruel vengeance was taken. And this is a sympathetic chronicle. The McWilliam's daughter, who had not long left her mother's womb, was put to death in the Burr of Forfa in view of the marketplace after a proclamation by the public crier. Her head was struck against the column of the cross and her brains dashed out. O-M-G. That is brutal. That is quite brutal. We're in uh, Ramsey Bolton territory here for Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. fans. Crikey Moses. So this. So what was this girl's relation to the perpetrator of the crime? Daughter. Last daughter and surviving heir of the McWilliam dynasty. So that's how he gets rid of the McWilliams mm. with the final... That's the final public wow. full stop that's on the so McWilliam gross. dynasty. Her parents were dead by then. Yes. Small graces. Whole family is dead. Right. Uh, historian Neil Oliver says that it was politically pointless, because the McWilliams by this point are, you know, yeah. they are finished. Uh, but this King of Scots was nothing if not thorough. The snuffing out of her life, specifically the way in which he had chosen to do it, was remembered for generations, just as Alexander had hoped it would be. Yeah. So he wants to make a very strong public display that says, there will be no rebellions, there will be... No more of this nonsense. I'm your king. Yeah, remember End of this the matter. image. Mm. 
Uh, we did say he was competent and efficient. I mm. suppose he, when he said, I need a message, I'm going to be efficient about this message. He certainly was. It's horrible. Scandal-wise, mm. um, I was hoping that I'd have quite a big inane grin across my face now when you're telling me all the juicy bits. You're hoping for... Um... Carry on, nuns. Yeah, in Scotland. And instead, I'm sort of a bit <laughs> taken aback and shocked. It's nonetheless. You are shocked. Yeah, <laughs> it's nonetheless shocking. Um, so what we've we got, we've got only one illegitimate the daughter. But when he's married to the King of England. But when he's married to the. And what have the we got? The eighty. Um, oh, the eighty limbs. Eighty chaps. One hundred and twenty little bits of the horse. Yeah. Oh god, it's horrible, isn't it? It really is Ramsey Bolton territory. I've forgotten I've so concentrated on that child that Yeah. Um I think it's another seven. I mean if he mm. if he it's not as well known if if that was a uh, Thomas Beckett. Yeah. You know, that's that's really big score. But as far as commitment to gruesome deaths go, yes. He's achieved. Mm. He's got hundred and twenty hands and feet, um, Decomposing somewhere, yeah. scattered baby brains, yeah. men pulled about by horses, yeah. and then he thinks, oh, "Oh, drat! I forgot the uh, sex. I better <laughs> go and have um, do that." <laughs> uh, so, uh, so seven at least. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where if this was like a Game of Thrones or another, you know, medieval yeah. um, series, if and if that scene was in it, that mm. would be a scene that people would yeah. talk about and remember. The choir boy disguises his maliciousness well. <laughs> yes. Um, I agree. I think, yeah, that not to condone what Alexander's doing mm. here, but these are all rebels. Yeah. And, again, not to uh, compare him to a certain English medieval monarch, but mm. <laughs> rebels are dealt with in a certain way. He is also merciful to the people that submit to him, and he's yeah. not a psychopath, or he's not a sadist in the sense he doesn't mm. do this all the time. He doesn't mess yeah. around with people. It's just... That's what political. makes him not like Ramsey Bolton. Exactly, it's just political efficient. So yes. He's just good at uh, good at putting down rebellions. <laughs> so I'm going with a seven as well, which yeah. gives him a fourteen for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, obviously he's a lovely man. <laughs> oh God, I'm reeling. We've got the peace with England. Yeah, with the uh, Treaty of York in 1237. It's very pragmatic which we've said a few times, William the Lion never really is able to accept that pursuing Northumberland is not really working out for him. Alexander sees realities and decides, right, put this to bed, I'm going to forget about the northern counties, and instead I'm going to focus on sorting out my own backyard. Yeah, he makes William the Lion look worse. Mm. So this piece actually lasts from 1217 to 1296, which is obviously... 1217 to 96? That's Mm. amazing. Very long period of peace. I don't know why... Who who on earth would um, ruin this <laughs> golden age? All this hard work. And that does allow him to maintain and dominate Scotland. Yeah, to go back and sort stuff out. The peace with England was always backed up, though, wasn't it, with force? Like They went toe-to-toe, but always decided yeah. that peace was better. Yeah, so it wasn't that he was being forced no, yeah, it was, at gunpoint. And so he could go around and just sort out... As we said, sort out this basic admin once and for all. Yeah. And just get it stuff done. By whatever means. Yeah. And, you know, so we have actually quite a good show of independence mm. from Alexander II. He considers himself and Scotland as equal to Henry III and to England. Mm. And he refuses to back down whenever 
Um, he is asked to pay homage, including the papacy actually put pressure on him in 1235. He refuses. And if we contrast that with all of his predecessors who initially owed their thrones to the King of England or they're paying them homage or they're yeah. sort of acknowledging them, not Alexander. He's, no. like you said, he's going toe-to-toe. Um, he does actually really push this case for Scotland to be on an equal footing with England. One of these things is the Scottish coronation. So 1221 and 1233, he lobbies the papacy for permission to use holy oils for the anointing of Scottish monarchs. Mm -hmm. Now, this is important because it puts in sort of religious eyes, which obviously at the time they all believed and felt very strongly, the anointing puts you on a different level. You're almost a representative of God at that point. You take on a new sort of status when you're anointed with holy oil. Mm -hmm. Scotland doesn't have it. England does have it. So he tries to get it for the Scots. Oh, I see isn't successful because the English um, lobby quite strongly against it. But it's put the issue on the table with yeah. the papacy. He's How hard is it to get a hold of some holy oil? Oh, it's pretty, pretty it's difficult because the Pope doesn't want to give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he is successful in the 1240s when he lobbies the papal court to have his great-great-grandmother, Margaret of Wessex, canonised. That's the famous Margaret that's that we That's the about. wife of Malcolm III, mm. Saint Margaret, and it's thanks to Alexander lobbying to have her recognised... By the oh, Pope. right, okay. So and this she's... is the point at which she becomes a saint. And she's still uh, well-known today, so that's yeah. p- props so, to her as mostly. But And she's, she's Scotland's first um, royal saint, so he has succeeded in getting Scotland on the map in that sense. They've now got oh, this right, so, yeah. quite revered figure mm. in their history. Oh. He has that marriage to Mary de Cousy, which is a powerful family, as we said, kind of opposed Henry III. Oh, that's yeah, a very yeah. pointed mm. um, display of his independence. And it's also good to contrast with William the Lion, who was basically given a marriage by Henry II, and it was quite a lowly one He was so in the pocket. Whereas Alexander initially gets the king's sister, yeah, and then when she dies, he goes off and marries the daughter of one of the king's enemies. So he's very clearly... So the King of England has absolutely no say in that. Exactly. And in 1244, when tensions are brewing and it looks like there might be war between Henry and Alexander... The uh, Cousy family actually offered to give Alexander some mounted knights. Oh right! In preparation for this, so, so it, you know it, it worked well. Works dividends, yeah. He's also uh, a great patron and founder of monasteries. They always Good stuff are for the church. Well, he's it. probably the most significant one since David the First. Oh, so he is quite a notable one. Um, he supports traditional ones across the country, but also new religious orders such as the Dominicans and the Franciscans, right? Franciscans, um, which indicates he does have a certain awareness of sort of religious developments in Europe, so mm-hmm. he is genuinely advancing things and doing yeah. interesting stuff. But it also has political uh, ramifications, because he's able to boost royal control in outlying regions like Murray, like Ross, like Galloway and Caithness. He installs his own bishops who are loyal to him, do his oh, bidding. Yeah. So that's why, like with Caithness, when they murder his bishop, yeah. he's got to sort that out, because that's really is a yeah. challenge to his authority. Okay, so they're not. it's not just... A religious thing, it's state as well. Yeah, it's the two combined. They're both very important. And it's a good period of very stable rule in Scotland. Mm. He's got a very efficient fiscal regime in Scotland, so he's able to provide all of his sisters with very large dowries, and he's obviously got enough money to offer to buy the Western Isles. Yeah, true. We've also kind of got the beginnings of Parliament in Scotland in this reign. Colloquia, as it was known at the time. It's largely sort of for a chance for him to resolve disputes between his nobles. But it is a point at which they're all coming together and discussing major issues and mm. advice and stuff. And he sets that up? 
Well, it's sort of it's under his reign that it's starting to okay. become a, quite a big thing. I guess because we've got that much more stability across the country and these powerful lords who are a bit more stable, perhaps. Yeah. Um, he sorts to in, uh, sought to enshrine the concept of primogeniture throughout the nobility much more clearly. So, Earldom of Mar, 1222, and then the Lordship of Galloway, 1235. Mm. This brings stability and order, but it also really establishes the fact that the king is at the top of the tree mm. and that it all comes down from him. Mm. So, primogeniture everywhere means that ultimately, if you follow the line up, you owe everything to the king. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. So, rather than these piecemeal local setups, he's making it all very clear one system and uh he's also a bit more scottish than some of our recent ones oh lovely previous reigns criticized for being too anglo-norman so they're the ones at court who are controlling everything and perhaps the gaelic aspect is getting forgotten and that would cause friction and uh, more rebellions by yeah, exactly yeah. under alexander we get a bit more of an even balance so apparently something like eight of the 13 major earldoms are in the hands of um native elites right like sort of gaelic lords and you get a balance. You get rewards for the Anglo-Normans, like Walter Comyn, mm. um, but also the Scots, like Farquhar MacTaggart. Mm. So you see the two working together, and they both come into places like Galloway and sort things out for Alexander. So he's now got all the different kinds of people working for one Scotland. And the fact that it's all now this one big mainland Scotland... Yeah. It's, it's, it feels like Scotland now. It's mm. not these funny little territories. It's all Scotland. Yeah, and it's the first example of those two... Camps working together. Yeah. Oh, it's really punchy category they mm. in this one as well, isn't it? Against him. Oh. I think we do have to acknowledge that uh, even though it's political and it's just against the rebels, it can be a bit brutal if you cross him. Yeah, but, you know, he wants to, he needs the stability for the people as a whole. Yeah. As Neil Oliver also said, you know, sometimes the kings are the ones that have to do the things that others can't. Yeah. <laughs> or won't. And yeah. Takes it to another level. And as I said, he could be merciful. 1222, he didn't disinherit the families of the men um, who killed Bishop Adam. So he didn't go off and kill like the entire family line. He killed <laughs> those murderers, but then he said, right, well, you know, pay some compensation. Oh. You can get your lands back and, you know, you can be restored to peace. Yeah. Order. Just says a lot about the um, the world that we are inhabiting and thinking of as normal here. That yeah. it, no, he's fine. He, he does no, he, <laughs> he doesn't go off and kill the entire family line. That's fine. He's a nice bloke. Exactly. Um, at 1235, he was also merciful to the Galwegians that surrendered, and he also acknowledged that they got their own special laws, so he doesn't completely obliterate right. all their culture and everything. He just says, mm. right, you no longer have this big independent lordship, but you can still kind of... Do your stuff. Do your stuff. Your weird dances. In a nice way. A more serious issue for him was uh, really quite towards the end of his reign, um, the Bissett dispute. Mm. Walter Bissett. Um, basically, the issue is that powerful no uh, rival nobles started to get a bit out of hand, a bit too powerful, and he wasn't able to keep control of them. There's a chap called Patrick of Athol, who uh, stood to inherit significant lands in uh, the west of Scotland, but he was killed in a hall burning, obviously, <laughs> in 1242, allegedly by a chap called Walter Bissett. Now, he was married to an aunt of Patrick's, so by primogeniture rules, if Patrick dies and doesn't have any children, mm. he might stand to inherit. Mm. So his uh, rivals claim that he was the murderer. So we've got um, Walter Comyn is one of these rivals, and also the Earl of Dunbar. They take up arms, and the weak justiciars in the area fail to prevent them from sacking Walter Bissett's lands. Walter Bissett tried to get out of this. He claimed he'd actually been with Alexander and Marie de Cousy at the time. Definitely wasn't him, but rivals aren't having any of this. They have three councils disputing this, and eventually Walter Bissett has to be exiled. 
Why? Because they can't prove it, but they know it's him and they just... Yeah, and they're not going to take him being allowed back, so Alexander mm. has to exile this guy. And he actually, instead of going off on the Crusades, which is what he said he did, he went to Henry III instead. Oh, and said, cheeky devil. Oh, this is all very bad. Alexander's, you know, might be making teaming up with France and Walter Commons doing these castles down south. Uh, trouble there. So this helps to set off the chain of events that almost leads to war in 1244. What the devil? What a swine. Yeah, swine. Um, Alexander replaces the weak justicias with a new loyal man, Alan Durwood. Mm. who he sets up to be a kind of a balance against the common family, who he feels has got a little bit too powerful. But this does create a bit of a damaging split in the minority of his son, Alexander III. Okay. I think that's all right, though, given that everywhere else he's put it out successfully, the mm. rebellions out successfully. And it doesn't come to civil war. Alexander himself is never actually under threat. And in a way... The minority, yes, there's fighting between the rival families, but actually the primogeniture bit works. Mm. So they're accepting Alexander III, a boy, as king. It's yeah. just about who gets to be in charge of him. So in a way, yeah, yeah. it's still that's kind true. of worked out okay. Primogeniture is now unquestioned for the succession. And that, that's another bit of tedious admin, that he has just sorted. Yeah. That, I mean, that's been the crux of all of the previous yeah. Rex Factor episodes in this series, was that um, just rival dynasties. Yeah. So that's a massive thing for him just to sort out, to say, well, that's clearly a problem, let's get it right. Yeah. It's great, Graham. Mm. I think it's really good. Um, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head mm. who'd compare. Well, I mean, we had David who did lots and lots of massive reforms in church and in state. What did we give him? Ooh, we gave him 18. I think two nines we both gave him. I feel it's up there. I'd be mm. happy to give him another nine. Are you at all put off by the um, horses and the girl and the... No. <laughs> no. Bring them on. More of it, I say. In context. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think it's great. I think that has... And we saw the proof we will find out is in the pudding, but mm. this piece lasted. Yeah. He consolidated. It was just medieval admin. Yes. <laughs> it was a bit sticky, but it was medieval admin. And he was good at it. Mm. Nine. Big score. I don't think he's quite up there with David I. Because David I, that's where we kind of had this sort of Davidean revolution, as it was called. So he really kind of took Scotland from this sort of one bit more medieval past into much more real big changes and reforms. Alexander, Mm. I think it's very, very good. But I don't feel like it's a massive leap forward but the peace with England is the major thing and he does lots of good governance and it's good stable rule I think it's good Mm. but I don't think it's spectacular I don't think there's really I don't know if there's one big thing that you'd say yes he did this and it took us on to no but it's I suppose it's the same way that he dealt with the battles that there was no (laughs) one big thing but but over time you look at the final picture you think oh that's really really tasty there was some I suppose if David uh invented the um, Psalter, whatever it's called, the flag, yeah. feels like this chap, Alex, stitched it all up and put it on a flagpole. He did the refining. Yeah. He actually, you know, he did the final little push mm. to make it to make it more recognisable. Very strange metaphor, but um, <laughs> no, I, re- I really liked him. I still think it's good. I'm just not going to go quite up into the okay. very, very upper echelon. So I'm going to go with another seven and a half for okay. subjectivity, which gives him 16 and a half. Which is still good. Still a very good score. Longevity. So he is king. 
mm. from the 4th of December, 1214, to the 6th of July, 1249. Ooh, that's a lot. So that's a reign of 34.58 years, oh. but a score of 16 out of 20. Brilliant. Because remember, we've got our yeah. new longevity system. Yeah, and if you want to find out how that works, have a look at Graham's blog post Indeed, on, on WordPress. our WordPress. And uh, we've got some messages from people suggesting what uh, new nickname we oh, yeah. give to it. Because before we had the patiometer. Yeah. So we put this out, and uh, various people have got in touch. Auntie Catherine, at Catherine underscore T on Twitter, said that uh, she read that as Codswallop at first. So it's oh, it's Ed Cadwallada yeah. um, who came up with it. So she said, I read that as Codswallop at first. Hannah Crompton, at Crompton Hannah on Twitter, suggested Wallyometer. Lovely. So we've got Codswallop and uh, Wallyometer at Cod the moment. Not perhaps what Ed was hoping for, to be <laughs> remembered. Steve Payne on WordPress said, The Hello. Edometer, surely. Patty wasn't Patty's surname, was it? Ed's Accumulator. Do you remember mm. that, Radio 2? Mm. One for the over 60s there. <laughs> Carl Brink on Facebook said, Personally, I think, since it's the measuring stick for the length of a ruler's rule, it should be called some variation of the ruler, rule, ruler. Yeah, no, I read that one. I really enjoyed that. The ruler's rule ruler. Art Dork Girl on WordPress said we could make it sound really scientific and go with the Cadwallader calculations. Oh, there could be something a bit more mouthy around that, can there? I can feel that. Yeah. There's something in that one, yeah. Ali Marie on Facebook says Dunstanometer, obviously. Forget it. Does it make sense? No. Does it have to? No. Dunstan pops up anywhere he damn well pleases. It's appropriate. We're given that logic, that's true. And Chuck C on WordPress says, or we could just say, that's number wang. <laughs> Yay! Good. Good reference. Google, Mitchell, and Webb for uh, American listeners. Anyway, 16 out of 20 is another good score for longevity. It's really good. Dynasty, not the program. Well, he has one child. Oh. Just the one. Right. Alexander III, um, which gives him a score of 2 out of 20. (laughs) One gives you a score of 2. Yes. Um, So was that with his first wife? No, that was his second wife. wife. So good thing he did uh, get that second incendiary mm. marriage. Yeah, we do. And perhaps there's a little insight into uh, Alexander II's character. He doesn't choose to honour his father, William, his great-grandfather, David, or the creator of the dynasty, Malcolm, when he's mm. thinking what would be the most appropriate name. He calls it Alexander. <laughs> Brilliant. So he's arrogant too. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Anyway, all of that added up gives him a total score of 63. Oh, where's that in the... Um... In the great annals of Rex Back to History. That is the second highest score on the list. Only Malcolm III has a, uh, really? a higher one. I think were it not for his uh, lack of um, offspring. Yeah. How many children did Malcolm III have? Ten. Uh, oh. Okay, so he had a long way to go there. <laughs> he had a long way to go. Yeah. But, of course, the score is only one part of it. We mm. now need to decide whether or not Alexander II has got that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! I definitely think so. Mm. I, we, we haven't had many Rex Factor winners in this series. And no. some of the ones that we've had, I already knew about. Mm. This guy... I, well, I know the name Alexander, but I didn't know any <laughs> of his history. Um, really, really good. Yeah. I've got to shine a light on these lesser-known monarchs, and that's really good rain. It's that quiet efficiency mm. that isn't going to attract the people who want Henry VIII history. Mm. But tap him on the shoulder and say, well, what's going on here? You'd be faced with a ruthless monarch. Mm. And, you know, we've got the McWilliam dynasty snuffed out. mm Quite yeah. virtually. We've got an army, Scottish army at Dover. You, you, we've got a, an enormous Scottish fleet. 
we've got all of mainland Scotland now actually being Scotland. Primogeniture established. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a yes. I'm I mean, I think the right only there. argument against him really is that he does give up the claim to the northern counties, which would have been quite a cool thing if he could have attempted that, and that he does die before the Western Isles. And like you were saying, that mm. could have been the kind of the grand thing that mm. we say, wow, he was the king that did this. I think Is he missing that little cherry on top that makes it worth eating, even though obviously everyone just takes the cherry off <laughs> and makes the cake and eats it? <laughs> yes, if you're after a... a, a sweet cake mm. rather than a nice meat pie. Ah, don't and want to I on think top of that. <laughs> now unpack this if you will. <laughs> Let's eat this one up and have a look how it tastes like. But uh I think yeah, I think if he had have had that final battle then we'd already know about him and it'd have been a shoe in. Yeah. Um I think that's a ma- I think his cherry on top is is Scot is an established Scotland. Yeah. That's a biggie. Yeah. I'm with you. I think it's got to be a yes as well. It's very impressive rain. He does a lot of things in all areas. And uh, he does have a lasting legacy, like we said, with that mainland Scotland. Yeah. So that's the hardening crust on the meat pie instead yes. of a cherry on top. It's it's set. So that is a yes for Alexander II. He's got the Rex Factor. Well, well done, Alexander II. I really liked him. Yeah. And uh, maybe not the man to put in charge of a creche. <laughs> no. No, true. Brilliant stuff. Well done, Alexander. Let us know what you think by getting in touch with us on our social media. Um, follow us on Twitter at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook. Yes. Now, we've had a little short break, as you'll know, from our... We've been, when was it? A month or so since yeah. our last one? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're back. Um, so, yeah, get get in touch there. Email us, rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and go on to rexfactor.wordpress.com to read blogs in support of the podcast and complete... Uh, simple polls for both the English and Scottish monarchs. Uh, mm. Do you agree whether they not? Mm. No. Do you think they should have got the Rex Factor? Yes, no, or maybe. Mm. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, um, leaving a review on iTunes and subscribing is very yeah. helpful. Helps get us noticed and more people listen. Um, if you'd like to donate to the podcast, obviously it is a, a free, uh, a freely available podcast. But if you want to voluntarily donate, um, you can make a one-off donation on PayPal either on the Podbean website or on WordPress. And thank you very much to Jennifer Warner and Kay Fillmore. Hey, thanks, guys. So since last we spoke. Or you can do crowdfunding, mm. which is where you uh, can give us a bit of money every month. Um, but you get some rewards. So if you click on the Be My Patron link, again, on those websites, um, for $1 a month, you get a mention on podcast. $2, you get a comment read out. $5, a mug, which yeah. again are... Still, uh, they are coming. Oh, we've seen we've seen the logo. We've, we've seen, seen the, the logo. Or, new logo. The very coming, final one. Getting there. Ten dollars a blog will do a blog on the subject of your choice, and fifteen dollars a month, um, a podcast special. Yeah. On the episode of your choice, and we've already done the Battle of Waterloo, William the Marshal, which are both available just for two dollars each, which mm. everybody can get. Thank you very much too, with our newest members are Privy Council, uh, Mitchell Sklar, Anna Lewis, Daisy Bonsall, and Shelley Yu. Arise, all of you. Hmm. Now, we've had a few messages from people since uh, last we spoke. Ed uh, Cadwallader, he of the uh, yet-to-be-confirmed new longevity measure. That's a catchy name. (laughs) That's the one we'll go for. (laughs) To be confirmed. TBC. (laughs) Um, He wrote in about elephants. Of course he did. Because we had uh, talk about Edgar and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he says that uh, Caliph Harun al-Rashid gave Charlemagne an elephant called Abul Abbas, which he decided to add to his army for an invasion of Denmark. 
Abel Abbas died, the Franks took this as a sign of God's displeasure, and they were soundly beaten. That's a wonderful name, mm. Abel Abbas. Um, in relation to William the Lion, Courtney on Twitter, at underscore uno underscore dos underscore trace underscore, <laughs> says that I think Billy the Lion should have won, if only for being the cause of Henry II's straw snack. Yeah, that's great moment. The epic plantation yeah. of rage. Uh, Jeanette Binfield, um, who describes herself as Lady Privy Council Member from Hampshire. Yeah, hello, Jeanette. Um, she said that whilst listening to Backgroundy Bits Series 1, you guys sounded so young. Ha <laughs> Really? Oh, that's sweet. Thank you, you mentioned you intended to reveal at the end who had won each factor. Mm. So I'd love to know who was the most battly, scandalous, and was the king or queen of subjectivity. And do you agree with that result now after finishing the sk- series? Scores may not tell the whole story. Right, yeah. I think it's quite a good one. I don't know, a blog or even maybe when yeah. we finish this series, we can even have a little... Uh, little Episode, oh, I was maybe. thinking that some of the top scoring ones and deciding who deserves to get the. Uh... Um, just on the straw moment. Yes. Um, this you, this may may explain a lot, <laughs> um, but uh, I got my mum listened to that episode, uh-huh. and I got a text out of the blue mm. a week later. So I'm not thinking about the episode at all. I just <laughs> woke up at six forty-five and got this text that read, <laughs> "Greatly enjoyed the moment." And eating of straw. No, and eating straw. Mum. Kiss. <laughs> so, um, uh, I said, hi, mum. Didn't understand this. Sorry. Like, this, just out of nowhere. Enjoy the moment and eating straw. I thought it should crack. Um, and then her reply was, have you tried prune juice? Very delicious. <laughs> so, I, I mentioned... definitely listened to the episode. <laughs> well, I, I tracked her down and um, let her out, and she said she explained all, but no. So that, that might explain a lot. <laughs> and uh, finally, Anna Lewis, a uh, new Privy Councillor, mm-hmm. said, at first, I really wish Elizabeth I had won the ultimate Rax Factor. Yeah, me too. I yeah. do have a question, however. Why is Kenneth McAlpin not known as Kenneth I? Yeah, so good question. We have question. a Kenneth II, we have a Kenneth III. Yeah. Why not Kenneth I? Yeah. Well, I think the answer is that actually you could call him Kenneth I. It's just that because he's like the start of a dynasty, yeah. it kind of has more of a ring to it. I think Kenneth MacAlpin, it sort of feels a bit more oh, like right. it sets him apart from the others, a sense of a dynastic mm. thing, the Alpine dynasty. But he is he is technically Kenneth I. And it also just mentioned that a few um, other podcasts that uh, you might like to try Ooh, out. People yeah got in touch with us and uh, um, let us know about their existence and thought maybe we'd like to share with others. So if you want to try things other than Rex Factor, some options for you. There's uh, the Partial Historians, right. who are uh, two uh, Australian academics who do a um, sort of quite fun podcast on uh, the Romans. Okay. So both sort of experts in their field. So, you know, it's very informative. They got in touch with me two years ago. It's one of those things where, like, you see emails that you think I'll come to that later and then you yeah. clear a few flags and then suddenly one appears and you're like did I deal with this yeah. or did I forget yeah so I either told you about this two years ago or I've only just mentioned it uh, so do check them out and um, there's another one let them eat cake which is a new uh, podcast on all things royal British and royal okay. stuff you might have a little look at there's totalis rankium oh yes now I know this one which uh, has uh, I think fairly, fairly borrowed the uh, Rex Factor concept of uh, certain uh, reviewing of Roman emperors specifically. Yeah. So they've got their own sort of categories specific to the Roman emperors, if you want to hear about them. I've met the chap who uh, runs yeah. that. Nice nice bloke. Give them a look. They'll be on iTunes as well. Um, Elias Belhadad got in touch. I think he may have spoken to you on Facebook. Um, so Elias is doing a podcast called The History of Islam, 
Okay, yeah. Some good yeah. reviews, so check that out. And at some point, Podbean will be reviewing, uh, releasing an interview with me. Yes. Now, I was due to um, be on that as well, but unimaginably... I had a scheduling conflict, <laughs> so um... we'll, uh, we'll post that on Podbean and mm. Facebook and everywhere else. But uh, yes, check out all of those podcasts. Yeah, that is it for Alexander the Second. We finally have another Rex Factor win in the Scottish series. Next time we'll do his son Alexander the Third. Mm. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.